Hello, listeners. This episode of the Wonderful and Strange Twin Peaks Logcast is going to be a bit different than our usual fare. Uh, we thought it'd be best fit to have a content warning right off the get-go because this is going to deal with some heavy, serious subject matter. Uh, if you are listening and you are not really in a good mental space to be listening to a podcast about a topic such as abuse of children, including sexual abuse, drug use and addiction, or trauma and mental health, we would strongly advise you to avoid this episode of the podcast as we will be talking about those sort of subjects. Sometimes in order to keep this podcast up on the air, we might avoid using certain words that might get flagged, such as the R-A-P-E word. Even though we will be talking about that, we may not use that language. We might from time to time still have some usual joking banter, but as a whole, this episode will be more serious because of the subject matter that the Diary of Laura Palmer deals with. Yes, we want to make sure that the severity is known, even though we may not use more of the severe language, especially for the platforms that we do have. Now, if you are coming into this episode and do not think you can handle it, that's fine. Just so you know, the next episode we are planning is for Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me. So if you want to catch up on that media in the meantime, just so you know, that's where we're heading next. And one last final note. Because The Professor and I are two male podcasters, we wanted to make sure that we brought a female perspective into this particular episode, given The Diary of Laura Palmer is about the experiences of a teenage girl, and neither myself nor The Professor can relate to those experiences directly. As a result of that, we'll be featuring on this episode a friend of ours who will contribute some guest perspectives on The Diary. Thank you very much for your understanding, and if you're joining us for this episode, I hope you enjoy, as always. If you have any questions, comments, or just remarks to us, you can reach us at snakeeyedreams at gmail.com or tweet at us at snakeeyedreams1. As always, that is the numeral one. Thank you. And on with the show. I have no idea where this will lead us, but I have a definite feeling it will be a place both wonderful and strange. Hello, and welcome to the wonderful and strange Twin Peaks Logcast. I'm Khalil, and with me today is the pen to my diary. Oh, oh, I, I don't want any sort of hand in that. No, um, I'm good not but being it's, the But it's pen. my diary. It's my life. If it has anything to do with something like this, in this sort of context, in this sort of phrasing, I, I'm sorry, Khalil. I, oh. I, I have to leave the podcast. Well, what do you see yourself as? I see myself as someone who has read something very personal. Mm. We are talking today about The Secret Diary of Laura Palmer, yeah. written by Jennifer Lynch. Uh, as many of you know, David Lynch's daughter. She was 22 years old when she wrote this. And as you said, it does read as something very, very personal. Oh, yeah. Uh, though I am very impressed, uh, Jennifer Lynch, being 22 years old, has made something to this length. And honestly, very, it, I would call, impactful mm. from my personal reading. I haven't read anything really much like it. Mm -hmm. And I don't necessarily know if Jennifer Lynch has done a lot of fiction writing outside of this yeah. or before this. So I think as a footnote on her career, it's a rather interesting way to start her literary endeavors. Yeah, especially since it's been working with like David Lynch and Mark Frost, I imagine, or with a project of theirs. They, they might have got her started a little bit on it. So before we get talking about our thoughts proper, I did want to give some context on the book itself. So The Diary of Laura Palmer was originally published in 1990. It was released between seasons one and season two, in that time where it wasn't quite airing yet. Uh, so someone could pick up this book and get to this before we even have what happened to Cooper getting shot. So yeah. pretty early on, I would think, to have all this dumped on you. 
1990, she did an interview on Good Morning America that I checked out. And in that interview, Jennifer Lynch shared that prior to writing, she had been pulled into a dark room and told who the killer was before she began writing. Mm -hmm. The interview came out the day after the 1990 Emmy Awards. And just kind of some trivia out there. Uh, this was the award ceremony where season one of Twin Peaks had been nominated for 14 awards and it won two. Oh, no, honestly, that's great. I see things that just get the blatant end of not mm -hmm. of being nominated. So I know that the interviewer didn't see it that way because he referred to it being a dark day for Twin Peaks fans <laughs> and was very, uh, you know, down in the dumps about only winning the two of the awards. Oh, uh, by the way, no. the two awards were outstanding costume design and outstanding editing for a series with a single camera production. Excellent. Um, now, mind you, I'm just wondering what sort of costumes really stood out. This was pre-Tojimura, so it couldn't have been that. Uh, <laughs> I'm pretty sure they would have lost the reward if it was post-Tojimura. Well, uh, on that note, season two would be nominated for four Emmys and would win zero. All right. Well, quite a decrease. I still think the fact of being nominated is an important statute, something that should be recognized. And besides, there are there's things that can be let's call it fixed mm. in certain favors, dependent on how well one advertised themselves with different things like parties or investments with the judges. But that's just the history of award shows in right. general. I, I don't put much stock into it myself. I think it's interesting to look at what's being considered, but at the end of the day, the Academy doesn't necessarily have the fortune telling abilities to know what's going to have staying power and what's going to deeply personally affect people. Yeah. At the end of the day, Twin Peaks didn't win many of those awards but is remembered strongly by a fan base when a lot of other shows in 1990, quite frankly, aren't remembered 20, mm -hmm. 30 years later. Mm -hmm. Back to the book, uh, David Lynch and Mark Frost told Jennifer Lynch to, quote, be Laura Palmer. And Jennifer Lynch says that she knew Laura so well, it was kind of like automatic writing. The book ended up reaching number four on the New York Times paperback fiction bestseller list, although some U.S. booksellers refused to stock it due to its graphic content. Yeah, I, I can see why. Mm -hmm. And I would assume it's not just the U.S. that had that I, issue. I disagree with the sentiment, but I can see why. Yeah. The independent booksellers who don't want their business being boycotted or getting any legal trouble, mm -hmm. potentially, uh, is, is I there, can see why. Is there a history of this being boycotted or anything like that? Uh, not that I could it? find... I don't know if it was a big enough item to receive wide attention for that reason. Yeah. Um, but it was something that a lot of booksellers, I would imagine, wouldn't want to touch. Mm -hmm. And it, it may not have been enough of an earner for them to make it worth having on their shelf. Okay. At the time of release, Entertainment Weekly referred to the book as, quote, gratifyingly faithful to the spirit of Twin Peaks. Okay. The spirit being? The kind of the ethos of the show. Okay. They would say. Mm -hmm. uh, and... This book remained a pretty consistent element in the Twin Peaks fandom. I can't speak it for someone who was around when Twin Peaks aired, because obviously I'm not of that age. I wasn't around for that time. But it seems to have been a popular book. Like Fire Walk With Me, I'm sure it had its fans and its detractors that over time have come to maybe accept it a bit more than they had before. Yeah, It is probably as close to canon as you can get with a book yeah. for Twin Peaks because it was given a forward back in 2011 by Mark Frost and David Lynch. Mm -hmm. So I think that the presence of the forward and so many elements in the diary showing up in some form in either the main series or possibly Fire Walk With Me or The Return, I won't spoil anything, but enough things correlate that I think there's an argument that this is quote-unquote 
canon. Yeah. To whatever you personally decide that means for you, Professor. Well, in truth, it does cover the spirit of the show because, hey, Laura Palmer just keeps pop- popping up like a ghost. Mm-hmm. Uh, but beyond that, one thing that I would like to especially note, I got my book off of Amazon and I desperately wanted that sweet, sweet hardcover. So mine seems to be an older issue. Right. Yours has the foreword. Yes. So we do have context for both ends. Mine's just older, has some creased edges, but overall is a very appealing looking hard book mm-hmm. cover. And the creased nature of it almost appeals more. It looks oh, yeah. like a damaged book slightly, and that fits to the contents. That absolutely fits to the contents. I don't um, think this is a book that you keep sur- like in its ceiling perfectly ornate. I think this is a book that when you show some wear and tear on it, uh-huh. that feels thematically fitting. You hear that bookseller? You've got to mess with this book so it is absolutely torn to reflect the general nature yeah. of this book. So right. get on it. Like throw it into a small corner and let it just let time do it well as time went on uh we did get a 2017 re-release uh this time with an audiobook that both you and i enjoyed alongside our paperback and hardcover copies yeah no it was very very fascinating genuinely we get a actual voice from it from hey the actress who played Laura Palmer. Cheryl Lee. Cheryl Lee. And she does a fantastic job in my personal opinion Mm -hmm. on presenting the general emotion of Laura Palmer, as well as just generally reading a book. She knows how to catch a reader's attention, though at times non-conventional her readings may be. Mm -hmm. If you are interested in checking out the diary or it's been a long time since you've read it, uh, we would both strongly recommend the audiobook version. I did mine on CD because apparently I'm still living in the early 2000s. And the professor used Audible, correct? Yes, correct. Not sponsored. Not sponsored at all. (laughs) Uh, Although Audible, we're listening All I'm saying is that you get a free credit uh, when you use try out for their trial, at least at the time of this recording. So, hey, mm-hmm. if you want to try it out. And this audiobook re-release would coordinate in 2017 in May, right before The Return came out. Uh-huh. Very timely. Yes. The publisher of this book also described this re-release, quote, as required listening for diehard fans of the original show and essential background for the 2017 revival. Mm -hmm. So those of you listening who have seen The Return, you can kind of evaluate in your minds what elements of this book, if you've read the book and seen The Return, what elements would you say are the essential background? For The Professor, you gotta wait a long time, bud. Hey, it's essential enough for me to reflect on the past as well as something for me to connect and look Mm -hmm. forward to with Firewalk With Me coming up. So hey, uh, I'll get to the return eventually. Just this is true. Less as long as like the general audience, though. So <laughs> unless this podcast yeah. goes on for twenty years in between, it's to get true. that genuine feeling. Yeah, you'll have a you'll have an abridged version of that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. In dog years, but yes, yes. Uh, so in the meantime, I want to get some general thoughts across from you, uh, first time reader, and then me. I haven't read it in quite a few years. So this was very interesting for me to go back to. Yes. Uh, let's go ahead and talk just in general about the book, and then we'll dive into more of the specifics as we go through. Looking forward to it. So, first up, the writing style of it. Yes. So, like I said, as far as I can tell, Jennifer Lynch hasn't had a very huge history in fiction. Uh-huh. Uh, and in terms of Twin Peaks fiction, there's this, and there's a few other books we have in our possession written by different authors. Yes. This is written in that diary format, right? Uh-huh. And it's written from the perspective of, like, I think it's 12 to, like, 16. We get kind of that range of Laura Palmer throughout this book. Correct. What do you think of the writing style of the diary itself? Now, when it starts out... Laura Palmer is incredibly eloquent and it for a 12 year old, it takes me a little bit out just kind of like thinking about it. It almost makes me wish that they kind of just asked around and say, Hey, you got to 
12-year-old around keeps a diary. Why don't we read that? And Let's almost try to mimic that sense. <laughs> he just starts stealing the diaries stealing, of all the staff workers' 12-year-old daughters. Oh like, my gosh. It's, it's an immoral way to make this book, I know, but at the same time. It's an immoral book. I, I, fair enough. <laughs> that actually, now, you bring up a good point, though. I, and I also have heard some criticism of Lee's narration that she doesn't really sound like a 12-year-old. So there's a bit of a jarring that is true, disconnect. but she is also not a 12-year-old. Right. I think there's an argument to be made that the voice that Cheryl Lee uses, you can kind of understand it when she's 16, but when she's 12, there is that disconnect. I say that it's effective because it's a little bit of a reflection, almost as if like someone is reliving through the emotions. I'm fine with that. What I think happened here is that they wanted some consistency, possibly Mm -hmm. maybe the editors, possibly maybe Jennifer Lynch herself to continue throughout the book, and I do think that that is a fault in the book. If we take it as canon, that would mean that 12-year-old Laura Palmer and 16-year-old Laura Palmer were rather equally eloquent to the extent that this 12 year old was exceptionally capable as a writer and her word choice. And I'm not saying those people don't exist, but when it's too consistent throughout Mm -hmm. the book, I do think that that is eh, not exactly something that really connects to me as a reader. I mean, Laura could be equal parts gifted and equal parts damned. Yeah. What else about the writing style did you notice aside from just the age differentiation? Um, It is something that does definitely come out as personal throughout the book. Mm-hmm. I think that this is probably the most uncomfortable thing I personally have, have ever read. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is a pro to say yes. the least. I think that finding something that does explore other emotions, such as this amount of discomfort and amount of looking into someone's personal life uh, is definitely something that can be impactful for a reader. And it definitely mm-hmm. didn't impact me in that way. I felt that I should have like stopped listening. In fact, I tried to listen on the way to work. And unfortunately, I did decide, nope, can't do that. Gonna, gonna listen at it at home. Nope, I, can't, <laughs> I cannot mix these two things. Sure, sure. It, That's it, understandable. It, I felt filthy listening Well, to and it. I tried to warn you a little bit about that going in, but until you really dive in, you don't know the extent of that. Yeah, we'll even like s- slightly s- feel it. Mm-hmm. At the moment, you can tr- trust someone, but it there's it, it's different when just reading it. Even like speaking to it now, if you haven't read it yet, or if you haven't gotten that Audible copy, trust me, it's going to feel different than how we speak yes. of it. Yes, because she does target that raw personal side of the writing so well. Because it's in journal format, there's also this tendency in real world journals that I think the diary does a good job imitating in this book is that when you're writing a journal, you oftentimes will repeat similar ideas that have been weighing on you for months at end. Yeah. So the diary does sometimes tread on the same topics over and over again. You're going to hear a lot about her anxieties. You're going to hear a lot about the same people in her life over and over again. But I also think that adds an element of realism that if someone was writing a diary and they're in Laura Palmer's position, they're going to be fixated on the same topics for years mm-hmm. because those topics keep popping up. Yes. And I think that there are some things when you read the diary, you're going to be surprised how much they talk about, like she writes about this one thing and how little she writes about something else. Mm-hmm. And that again, makes sense to me that because she's writing about the things as Laura, that Laura would be fixated on at the time. Mm-hmm. And I think that was done very well. Excellent. And, and going on that note, what did you think as someone who didn't really know much about Laura going in? And this is a heavy hand, a heavy question. Yes. A loaded question. What did you think about what it reveals about Laura Palmer? I think that's, for one, I could still interpret her as an elder Torah, but more so as a person that I would pity overall. 
Because if you're just tuning in right now and you haven't caught our earlier episodes, uh, one, how dare, you know, it's understandable. Yeah, no, we, we <laughs> this, the this episode's designed to jump in just on this one if you want. Yeah. Uh, but early on in the show, when the professor hadn't seen any of Twin Peaks, he speculated that Laura Palmer might have some sort of Lovecraftian horror element to her. Yeah. Uh, he, like, literally the pilot episode, you accused her of being a cult leader. Hey. She has an influencer, and unfortunately, it was from something dark and twisted that eventually made her into who she is. So you you detected a sort of darkness and presence about her that you didn't really know what it was going to turn into. Yeah. But by the time we hear her gray-eyed doppelganger screaming in the red room, and -hmm. now we have all this darkness of Bob going through her in the diary, I think there's some element of that darkness you had hinted at and suspected now being actualized in some tangible form, just again, in a very different way than you might've thought. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it is something that really makes a sad tale for Laura Palmer in Mm -hmm. general, something where I can look back and though still be horrified in some actions that she had caused. I, there's not really as much blame on her as is the dark nature of what she has to face, whatever Mm -hmm. Bob may be. I don't really know if you had any expectations going into this as far as what you expected or hoped to learn about Laura Palmer, but as a concentrated, like, 200 pages of Laura Palmer content, Mm -hmm. how effective do you think it was at conveying Laura Palmer's life and personality to you, having, again, gone into this not really knowing much of anything about her other than what James and Donna might have mentioned? Very. Uh, It was very impactful. I think that with the context of the book going back in, it definitely does paint a more, I wouldn't even necessarily positive, but more saddening picture Mm -hmm. of Laura as we do see the funeral, as we do see the people that were impacted in general. There's a lot of empathy in this book. There's a lot. I mean, it's literally written to be Laura's unfiltered thoughts. Now, I mind, mind you, I do believe that these are her unfiltered thoughts. There will be, likely be some author bias, and there may be sure. some points in interpretation where we have to ask whether or not we ha- we can believe her full cognitive position. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I don't think that there's the secret, secret third journal, if you will, Gravity sure. Falls style, where... It- <laughs> where uh, there are the secret, secret thoughts, the true, true thoughts. I think that this is going to be the most definitive thing we get from a lost person. Fair enough, fair enough. And then one more question I wanted to ask Morgan in general. How do you feel about the tone and contents of this diary as being canon as a Twin Peaks spinoff? Like, comparing this to the tone and feel of the TV show. Oh, what did the, you think of the diary? Oh, the tone is absolutely different, but I think that's important for what it is, for what she has to face. Twin Peaks wasn't all about what's up with Bob, mm-hmm. uh, but this very much is. This is the family that she has been surrounded by, and this is her fending off what Bob is to her. Mm-hmm. This is this entity made to be a common thing through her day-to-day, and her struggles with it. Uh, whatever it may fully be, but also with the struggles with some addiction, the struggles with control, it is, I find, important that the tone is this different, Mm -hmm. important that the tone was handled this way, and if people are able to read it, I do recommend reading this, though painful it may be, um, emotionally, not like how it is presented. I think it is presented in a good way, in a bad way. Does that make sense? It it does make sense. It does make sense. Would you believe it, Professor, that I actually did some research for this episode? Uh, sure, sure. We're going to go with sure. We'll do the kind. So I looked at the Twin Peaks wiki, lovely as always. Uh Uh-huh. Looking dashing in its default shade of green. Brilliant. 
And there was a list of inconsistencies with the book that I thought I would bring to your attention in light. Okay. I'm curious on how much, again, maybe a writer's bias and mm-hmm. how much may be uh, <laughs> enough for me to bend into reason. Yes. So let's find out. So the original show takes place in 1989. Uh-huh. But the book, based on the journaling of events, would lead you to believe that the events of Twin Peaks happened in 1990. There mm-hmm. is a slight distortion because the book ends in the late 89, and then Laura Palmer dies, and then it would be 1990, which doesn't line up with what the show claimed as dates. Well, clearly this is an inconsistency because time works weird in Twin Peaks. The past so, and the future are the if same If you're thing. willing to just argue time works weird and then not worry about that discrepancy, that is up to you. Yeah. Just something to throw out there. Yeah. One of the more glaring weird issues is that there are several names spelled differently in the book. Uh-huh. You may not notice if you're relying more on the audio copy, but the actual physical copy of the book has some strange typos. So Madeline Ferguson in the book, they change the spelling so it is L-I-N-E instead of L-E-I-N-E. So there's mm-hmm. a missing E. Now, Ronette, they add an extra N in the book that isn't in the name Ronette. So it's just one N, then it goes to two. Yeah. Shelly, they add an E in the book when there isn't an E in otherwise. Mm-hmm. And then Emery Battis became Amory Battis. They mm-hmm. actually spelled his first letter wrong in his name. Interesting. Wrong or different, depending on what you want to believe. Mm-hmm. And this is based on, again, the spelling we see either in the show or in the credits. Yes. And then Flesh World, this is a minor one. In the diary, it's listed as one word instead mm-hmm. of two separated words. Now, you could wave off all of these as, you know, Laura being a person who makes typos. Yes. Or writing errors. Yes. I do think it's interesting, though, that she would be consistently making these errors and... It's only seeming to be with names of people. It's not like there's other writing errors in the journal. The journal is there. I would argue that people names are the ones that I would misspell the most. Uh, in fact, I even have a stepfather. Love him to death. He's a fantastic person, and I enjoy his company so much. Problem is, is that I keep getting his name wrong. Mm. Even though, like many Christmas cards have passed, I still question myself on that. Uh, yeah, I get it, but the diary doesn't have other typos, and that's what's so strange is that. Unless, because you look more at the physical than I did. I mostly relied on the audio. Yeah. When you were coming to the physical, were there writing errors other than names really there? Not that really comes to mind, but again, I'm willing to concede to the idea that names are fluid enough to get mixed up. I just feel like it it needs to go one way or the other. If we're going to allow typos and writing errors for the names, then I think we should see more words spelled wrong and like even things crossed out might even be good. You like have it? a sense of like, this is a real genuine article or have it fully edited. Here, uh, you hear that everyone? So from this point on, I'm going to look through all of Khalil's work and if he gets like <laughs> anything else misspelled other than just names, I will call a falsehood and say that he needs to work on getting himself an editor. I I don't think that's a fair comparison. My (laughs) only point is that this is meant to be her diary. Yes. You either need to go the approach that it's going to be written the way she would write it, in which case a normal person writing a diary, especially in an emotional state, they're going to be spelling things wrong and they're going to be having grammar errors. They're not even going to be writing full sentences half the time. Yeah. This is almost too clean aside from the names. Maybe that's where they try to push the cleanliness, but at the same time, those who may be editing or focusing on it being a proper work may mm-hmm. have wanted like the general sure. structures to still work the general words to work so yeah uh i suppose i'm more okay with the dissonance mm-hmm. in that respect and hey why not yes and then another inconsistency that's been noted is that it's unclear the book versus the show how long donna had known maddie 
Yeah. Because in the book, we get encounters of Donna and Maddie at a fairly young age, like early on, like 12, 13, they knew each other. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the show, it almost seems like they're meeting for the first time. They don't seem to have a lot of familiarity. There's a little bit of a gap between how well does Donna know Maddie in the show versus the book? Is it reconcilable or not? I've heard some disagreement on that. For me, I think that it's okay. Like, when you haven't seen someone for years, you can be a completely different person, mm-hmm. especially if we consider, like, ages, like, 12 and all the way into right. high school years. Like, I imagine Laura is more likely to be in contact with this person mm-hmm. than Donna is. So I think that that still is a p- passable fault. Yes. And to clarify, I think these are all minor. Yeah. I do think these are all minor. I do think that with the typing errors, the writing errors... Uh, it could have been considered a bit more thoughtfully. It really does feel like the names were spelled wrong on accident. It wasn't consistent enough to be a notable thing. It doesn't really mean anything. Yeah. Uh, but I almost wish if you're going to spell the name wrong, then spell other things wrong too. Eh, mm-hmm. whatever. It's still a minor issue. There are also two notable differences between the book and Fire Walk With Me, but they involve spoilers for Fire Walk With Me, so I won't get into them. Oh, Just no. know that there are two, and I'll probably remember to say them. Probably. You mentioned earlier that your copy did not have the 2011 forward. Nope. So I lent you mine. I forwarded you my copy to read the forward. And I didn't let you touch mine. I didn't want to touch your disgusting copy. Good. Your greasy copy. I made sure to lick it multiple times in case you did. So good. (laughs) So what did you think of the forward? Now, as far as the forward goes... From one end, it's interesting to read Mark Frost's musings, which, by the way, the way that he writes, Mm -hmm. it is delicious candy to my eyes. I look forward to going into The Secret of Twin Peaks, and I might pick up a few other of his books. I feel like eye candy is a different term than... Anyway, go on. (laughs) Uh, I'm going to pretend it's the way that I think You think Mark Frost is eye candy. That's all I need to know. I think that Mark Frost's words are eye candy, okay? okay? I I don't want that misrepresented. His words are more beautiful. I I am attracted to his words. I mean, they're more attractive to me than he is. I don't That's know the fair. guy. I That's know fair. his words more than him. Yeah, there is a there's a biography that came out about him like last year, I think it was. Okay. That uh, you might enjoy. Oh, fantastic. As long as it's words and not him. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> it, it seems that there's a lot of respect that Mark Frost does pay forward in not only towards this work itself, uh, but also it kind of goes into a little microcosm, a little bit of a snippet of the history with him and Lynch and how Twin Peaks even got started, mm-hmm. and which I think is nice, though it's certainly strange when we're focusing more on Jennifer Lynch's book. Yeah. Uh, where Pi was certainly involved in a nice little coffee house. Isn't that great? And it makes me almost wonder if this fondness for Pi might be indicative of that moment. I, I really found the forward rather underwhelming as a forward. Really? Because I feel like, and I and I will not claim to be an expert on how to write a good forward, mm-hmm. but for me, it's giving context for the reader of the book you're going to be reading. Yeah. And I feel like it's not about that. There's barely anything in there that relates to Jennifer Lynch or the diary itself. It's more about Lynch and Frost complaining. Well, mostly, mostly Frost, actually. Yeah. Frost complaining about the dream and how it was handled by the corporations. And it feels like a... Uh, a soapbox that he wanted to just complain about Twin Peaks, not actually talking about the book written by Jennifer Lynch. I think that it's still important in the respects that it shows that there is some regret held with Mark Frost. I think it's less of a soapbox and more so of a solemn chair in a cafe, just thinking and musing while you are mm-hmm. drinking coffee and eating your pies, thinking, 
what if things were different? What if things had changed? And maybe even the context of this book and what they could sort of tell and deal with connecting to this mm -hmm. book if they didn't push into this demand from the studio. Uh, I think that history is important. Now, mind you, I think there should have been more conversation, especially with David Lynch, too, talking about the daughter's book. Uh, but it still is something that I'm glad to have heard from the horse's mouth, if you will. Mm -hmm. One area, I guess, where there is an intersection is that Mark Frost states that he now agrees with what David Lynch had said back when they were airing the show, mm -hmm. that they made a mistake by giving into the network pressure to reveal the killer. Mm -hmm. Because, obviously, the diary of Laura Palmer was released at a point before the killer was revealed, mm -hmm. and it relates heavily to Laura's experiences with that killer. Yeah. So... I can understand the sense of connection then that Mark Frost, when thinking about the diary of Laura Palmer, because again, this forward came out in 2011. It came out years later. Yeah. In between the original and the return. Which I think that this forward is also important going into the return because I think that's the audience they were trying to hit. Yes. So you get this sense that Mark Frost, we don't know when he came to this conclusion, but he eventually agreed with Lynch that, all right, we revealed the killer at the wrong time. Now, interestingly, the way I've always heard it with Lynch is he like never wanted to reveal the killer basically. Yeah. Mark Frost words it a little bit more like we revealed it too soon. Mm -hmm. So I don't get the sense from this forward that Frost was saying we never should have. He's like, I agree with Lynch that it was too soon. Yeah. I feel like there's still an element of disagreement between the two over whether the killer should have ever been revealed. Too soon from never is still too soon. Uh <laughs> now my question is, of course, we'll never know what could have happened in any other universe. Yeah. Do you think that they shouldn't have revealed the killer so soon? I think that I'm fine with it for where it did lead. Mm -hmm. Again, I think I made this clear in our... Episode 16, I believe it was. It, it may have been episode 16. It may have been just like our bonus episode on my mm -hmm. impressions. Episode. Episode. But it was my idea that I'm fine for the train ride no matter what sort of ways it takes. Uh, in this case, we missed a stop mm -hmm. along the way on the train where we could have explored something or something would have changed or perhaps laura palmer as a guest on this train would have been on for longer rather than going off on that stop yeah i i have said something similar and i'll say it again now i don't agree with mark and mark not a first name basis <laughs> i i don't agree with mark frost or david lynch in the extent that I don't think the issue was when they revealed the killer. I think that was actually a really good point to reveal the killer. Mm -hmm. And I actually think the revealing of the killer is one of the best episodes in the entire series. Mm -hmm. I love the episode where that's revealed. Uh, and then the whole Maddie death sequence is one of the most harrowing elements of like daytime, well, not really daytime, primetime cable TV probably ever aired. But the, It's amazing that even got on the air the way it did. Yeah, but the cleanup of it, what I would yes. refer to as a cleanup, was definitely... Wild. It's it's the the episode where it's revealed and Maddie dies and the episode after those are both incredible episodes. It's that episode where Leland is incarcerated and Leland dies that a lot of fans I think like better than we do. That was notoriously our least favorite episode of the series. Mm -hmm. And it's after that fact, we're not even sure in Twin Peaks how much the average person knows about Leland being the killer. It's never really clear. We don't get a lot of moments of people coming to terms with the fact that Leland killed his own daughter. It's unclear. Does Donna know? Does James know? They don't really talk about it. We don't see Ronette. We don't see Sarah Palmer. It's like the whole thing got swept under the rug. That's not a problem of when the killer was revealed. It's again, like you said, it's the cleanup. And I think just because look, I, I've been looking and dabbling into Welcome Twin Peaks, something we'll cover in the future a mm -hmm. little bit more. Mm -hmm. uh, but it looks like that the entry for him saying that he will be missed, 
I don't think that they would do that for someone who may have been a notable act of murder, right. or at least in the general consciousness of it. So I think that for many people, at least, it wasn't quite revealed. Well, that's the thing, though, is if it wasn't revealed, why did no one stop asking who killed Laura Palmer? Because that was like the central mystery of so many characters yeah. that were actively wondering that. But as soon as we got revealed the killer, it's as though everyone just stopped asking, which <laughs> if, did, did, did Sheriff Truman get, get on the horn and say, it's all right, everyone. We know who the killer is. You don't have to worry. They're gone now. Also, Leland's dead. Unrelated. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know if that was clear. And the fact that we still don't know, I think the show didn't communicate that. So. Yeah. Moving forward. <laughs> moving forward. Moving forward. <laughs> moving forward in the Ford. I do have to say with Mark Frost's entry, it's very nice to get that inside of Twin Peaks. After yeah. all, it's noted that Twin Peaks feels like a dream, that it was with two friends over 20 years with the assistance of 200 talented yes. people. Yes, he credits artists. all the other people involved too. And the most admirable thing, if in my perspective, is that it... Mark Frost states that this is nine hours of content that was filmed in the course of 18 months, and he considers it to be amateur. Like, yes, and season one, yes. For season one. And honestly, if this is considered amateur, if that portion was considered amateur, I'm impressed by the amateur production. There's a sort of fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants nature that the season one had, that they hadn't known the reaction to it yet. They just filmed it before it actually got aired. Yeah. And they didn't know what it was. Mm -hmm. After the fact, you can refer to it as lightning in a bottle. But if you've ever been in one of those creative periods where you're just going with whatever flows right and everything's just clicking into place, yeah. it wasn't something made by two people who had decades of film experience. It wasn't something where people were giving them a lot of advice and direction. They were just making stuff They are making stuff, and it seems that they had a really genuine connection as yeah. far as like how they both talk to each other. He compares himself to Ike and Mike, which I assume is the candy. I don't know if the candy is based <laughs> off of anything else uh uh dwight eisenhower dwight eisenhower known as both ike and mike a fusion of a man <laughs> uh and it's interesting noticeably he doesn't mention season two he just sticks to season one just the <laughs> first nine hours i think that that question of what he kind of wish yeah he could look into uh kind of would be a little bit downplayed if he went too far in season two but i would love to see his thoughts mm -hmm. on it regardless we are left with the three testaments that he would try to keep to yes and that is to trust instincts fight for what they believe in and don't let other people's fears become theirs which kind of did with the whole entire re killer reveal Arguably so, yeah. I mean, he the, argued The it. only part that really relates to the actual Diary of Laura Palmer comes fairly toward the end, I think. Maybe it's like the halfway point. He makes this comment that, quote, for anyone who's ever sampled or obsessed over the show, here's another bright pane in its hall of mirrors. Mm -hmm. I like that wording. Mm -hmm. I like that sentiment. I wish that he hadn't spent 80% of his time for this forward talking about things he did years ago that did not involve Jennifer Lynch. I don't mm -hmm. know. I just feel like it's taking away from Jennifer Lynch's work. Um, there's this book I've been meaning to get to sometime in the future called Laura's Ghost, Women Speak About Twin Peaks. Uh -huh. And I know that Cheryl Lee had some involvement in that book as well. And it's a series of interviews and essays on the subject of Laura Palmer mm -hmm. and in general, the relationship between the show and female characters. Uh -huh. That feels like a much more prescient idea yeah. for a forward. Yeah, obviously not the whole book in front of the diary, <laughs> but I mean something actually talking about Laura Palmer or women's issues or Jennifer Lynch. Yeah. So when I see Mark Frost and David Lynch come on here and be like, good job, Jennifer. Also, by the way, we hate CBS. Like, I I don't know. Which, by the way, is a bad taste in my mouth. We have to like 
talk about David Lynch's entry as well. If the we're short talk and about. sweet little David Lynch entry. Mark Frost is about three pages, like maybe two and three yeah. quarters. And Pretty short by forward standards, but David Lynch, though. Three quarters. Yeah, he wasn't even going to bother with that. And I think the most uh, hilarious thing to me, likely unintentional, I'm mm-hmm. sure that he loves his daughter. I'm sure that he loves his daughter's work. I'm sure that he does well as a father. Uh, there's some stories about that. I hope he does well as a father. <laughs> He's a very distant man. He, okay. he is someone who consistently prioritizes art more than anything else, and that mm-hmm. would include his family. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is noted that he thanks Jennifer Lynch. He thanks the audience for Twin mm-hmm. Peaks. But most of all, he thanks Mark Frost. Yes. And it looks like he's putting Mark Frost on that pedestal while we're highlighting Jennifer Lynch's yeah. work. Which, again, I just feel like that's not necessary it's not necessary it's not the time or place like good that you're giving props to mark frost like great it, it definitely shows their bond but but it's not the place this this is not the place of time my friend when he's talking about the book he describes it as quote laura palmer was born in this dream and so was her diary jennifer lynch found the secret diary of laura palmer in the heart and mind of laura herself and he kind of speaks about the whole creative process of the original Twin Peaks as being like riding on a dark wind, a dark night wind, and just kind of marveling at everything around you. Yeah. And he seems to imply through his shortened forward, Jennifer Lynch is really no more responsible for the diary itself than he and Frost were for the original Twin Peaks. And that he kind of compares both as just tapping into an idea or energy that they just happen to connect to. Like, it's mm-hmm. almost less Jennifer Lynch writing this than Laura Palmer speaking through Jennifer Lynch like a host. (laughs) (laughs) I think that the way that David Lynch words it and gives praises, I think it still is high praise. No, you have to be someone who can conduct that current. And so that's why for me, whenever I partake on media, I usually choose whichever feels most canon towards Mm -hmm. what I see in a story. And I think that this amount of credence to it, as well as how it does communicate emotionally Mm -hmm. on those levels yeah, I think that this is a good read to through a Laura Palmer lens, and David Lynch may agree to that. Mm-hmm. I think at this point we've done a fine job giving context for the book. Oh, you vain jerk. I, I think we did a horrible job. There we go. I'm humble. We have no idea how long this episode's going to be. Nope. And just for some full transparency... This is the longest set of notes I've ever had for a podcast. Oh, I don't know. Lord. I don't know how this is going to compare to the movies. I think when I get to something like Inland Empire, it's going to be a nightmare and a half. We'll I, see. I can't wait until we have our nine-hour podcast. But, but the thing is, I have like you know double the pages I normally have on here. Yes. And if you've read the book, you know the nature of how things come and go constantly. Mm-hmm structurally speaking, we're going to roll with this the best we can, but we're going to be touching on things all over the place. So in no particular order here, kind of, uh, first thing we have is Maddie. Mm -hmm. Are we ready to dive into Maddie? Uh, of course, because this one is the true Maddie. Let's go to Missoula, Montana, professor. Oh boy. So my first topic here is the existence of Maddie. She exists. I never contested that. She no, exists. but you question the way she exists. The way that she exists, yeah, I believe that she was an entity, but I think that Laura Palmer, especially with how much high praises that she does give Maddie inside this tome, yep. uh, I do believe that there could be enough that, hey, it's, if it's someone really had to wear a Maddie mask, hey. When you were um, 
first watching the show, it almost felt to me at times, although again, I couldn't really say spoilers, it almost felt like you were accusing Maddie of being a doppelganger, but you didn't have the context of that yet because you were talking about it being like another Laura. And yeah. I'm just over here thinking of they're literally being the doppelgangers in the red room. How's Maddie? So at this point, you know, we have more context for Maddie in the diary. Yeah. She's not a recurring character. Like you said, it's someone that they knew when they were young, and then she kind of makes a small, like, phone call appearance later. But mm -hmm. she's not a constant presence in Laura's life or Donna's life. Yeah. We know at the beginning that Maddie is 16 when Laura is 12. Yeah. So if there is an element of doppelganger or parallelism, there is an age difference, at least on the birth certificates. I, I understand that. And the thing that does bother me, there's two things that bother me with that. One is that conversation with Sarah Palmer with Maddie in which Sarah Palmer is just like making emphasis on, hey, do you know how this person's doing? Um, you know, your mother. Oh, hmm. And it's just very passive and it just almost like backhands that mm -hmm. subject away. That's suspicious to me because, hey, uh, who wouldn't have that knowledge? I don't think her um, mind was in the right place for that. Possibly. I, I'm reading, it could be a little bit of both. Again, I know Maddie could see Bob in the household just like Sarah Palmer could. Yes. There's also uh, column B where I'm thinking to myself that Maddie is saying, do not trust my cousin. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering how far I take that. <laughs> like, is it possible that, hey, a doppelganger could die and Laura Palmer could die, that both of them could potentially be dead? I don't know. That yeah. scene opened up so many doors, and this... And knowing that that got kept in the last episode while yeah. other things got cut, yeah. it was important enough that they needed to keep it for some reason. I Whereas Josie got cut. Yeah. That's, again, curious. As far as the diary goes, we do get more of a connection to Laura then mm -hmm. that Laura knows Maddie similarly has the bad dreams that Laura has. Mm -hmm. We don't know if Maddie has dreams about Bob. It would be interesting if Maddie did because Maddie's not around Leland. I would argue that it seems that Sarah Palmer's side of the family, at least, or whichever way Maddie's mm -hmm. connected to the family, definitely has some, I would say still a psychic or seer-like link yes. to the supernatural. And it's interesting because some of that is due to like Leland literally being the manifestation of Bob. If they live in a household with Leland, it doesn't surprise me that Sarah and Laura both see Bob. But Maddie doesn't live with them. No. So if she's having weird supernatural dreams in another state, that would imply something a bit different than Bob, per se. Yeah, I think that what kind of tipped me off, I didn't think that was impacted by Bob directly, was A, Sarah Palmer seeing the white horse in the mm -hmm. living room and B, how she was directly speaking for what I would imagine the Black Lodge. Yeah. So in the, in the last episode you're referring to with the major. Correct. Yeah. And there's a point later on where Laura sends out a mental prayer, sort of a wish out to Maddie. It reminds me a bit of the moment where Audrey sent out a prayer to Cooper, right? Mm -hmm. And Cooper took his time getting to it. He got shot. <laughs> Uh, whereas Maddie got back shortly after and called Laura kind of out of the blue, mm -hmm. which Laura interprets to mean that, yes, she got my mental prayer. Do you believe that that was the case? Do you believe that Maddie heard Laura calling psychically in some way? Yes. Okay, cool. Yes. I, I agree with you. I, I think that too. <laughs> I do think that there is a definite supernatural element between the women of the, I wouldn't, Palmer and Ferguson households. I don't know what the traditional last name would be, especially if like it right. is just the female side and where they're married into. I think that'd be a fascinating thing to explore. We do have context though that Maddie is on Sarah's side of the family, right? 
I believe I, that's confirmed. I think it is, but I'm mainly leaning on the conversation Sarah was having yeah. with Maddie. I think Maddie's mom is Sarah's sister. Mm-hmm. And not to mention, I think that with Laura Palmer looking up to Maddie so much, mm-hmm. it definitely puts more into context on where they ended up. And yeah. that sense of distrust is, ooh, it's delicious. Maddie's a real victim in the series. Like, obviously, Laura is. Obviously, there's a lot of victims. But Maddie's someone whose death is so extra because uh-huh. she just kind of showed up, got immediately wrapped up in James and Donna's nonsense, mm-hmm. and then got murdered because she was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Mm-hmm. Donna almost got murdered, but not to say that Donna deserved to get murdered, <laughs> but Donna's murder at least would have been the sense that she'd been digging where she shouldn't be, mm-hmm. and Donna had been doing some things that I think if she got entangled in this, it would be partly her own doing. Yeah. Whereas Maddie just got dragged in. I really think Maddie's a victim in the purest sense that she didn't really do anything wrong here. No. She just got dragged into it. And there's that weird moment where they're trying to lure out Jacoby and she's wearing the Laura wig. Did you comment on how cheap that wig was? It is a cheap wig. And, uh, you know, again, if you think about Maddie as being almost like a doppelganger, it really does raise questions about that moment. Or maybe that was actually Laura Palmer in a bad wig. Again, (laughs) that is one of the things that I'm surprised I am so attached to. But just just some moments in the show. Speaking of Donna, though, there's a lot in this book about Donna, and I think understandably so. I think it's a good thing that this diary gave us so much Donna content. Mm -hmm. And I think it shows us more of what we already suspected Mm -hmm. in the sense of there was that scene where, and I love the scene, it's my favorite Donna scene, I believe, Mm -hmm. where she's at the tombstone of Laura Palmer at night and she makes this comment that it's like the town couldn't bury Laura deep enough, that all of Laura's problems are attaching to Donna. And I have my misgivings about Donna as a person. For me, and I never really mentioned this, but I'll say it now, (laughs) for me, the I Donna's character was ruined for me in the pilot, basically, because the moment I realized that Donna was the kind of person who the day her best friend died, she would make out with her best friend's boyfriend. That disgusts me. Like, I understand she's in an emotional state. She's gravitating towards someone for affection and condolences. I understand it. But it really feels like she cared way more about James and their relationship that happened on a moment than her best friend being dead. I don't And it really just like ruined the character morally for me. Okay. Donna could never dig herself out of that hole for me. In my viewing, I always thought of Donna as one of the most just despicable people. And I do judge that. Now, whenever it comes to this, especially on characters so long young, um, Whenever it comes to, like, a character under 25, it's that old saying of, I didn't know any better versus I should have known better. Um, So when you are in a developing state... Donna is one series of I should have known better decisions after another. Yeah. She never escapes that. Congratulations, you found a teenager in a drama. She's worse than the average teenager, though. I would say she's even, well, is she worse than James? I don't even want to get to that right now. Regardless, (laughs) I've seen all sorts of forms of mourning, not only just in my personal life, but also... Uh, how people have kind of come to me over their personal life. And there have been moments of just push into their emotions, push into the more primal givings. And to say that an idea of fondness, an idea of wanting someone who they can be in that romantic way, hey, it's the most soap opera moment inside the show. It's one I give of it those, more. Yeah. I give it more credence to the genre we're playing up and almost uh, playing mm-hmm. around more than I do on the general character. So right. I... I'm more forgiving. Meanwhile, I'm still more iffy on the people who should have known better in the adult situation. That's fair. I think the adults deserve more scrutiny than the kids. I would agree with you. Uh, I still think there's this sense with Donna that she, 
from the show, you could tell she didn't know much about Laura, at least the secrets that Laura had. Yeah. She suspected to some degree, but I almost wonder if Donna wasn't putting up some unconscious mental blockage that she didn't want to know the truth, so she didn't let herself know the truth. Because there is an alarming amount that Donna didn't really understand, and we see that coming through the diary big time. And I'm kind of curious on her attachments generally to Laura Palmer. If it's a sense that being friends for so long Mm -hmm. might have just continued this more followed nature, this curious nature, Um, just because there have been multiple times through the work that there has been some resistance, not complete, but some resistance that is kind of, I would say almost easily steamrolled by Laura's ambition or Laura's drive. Right. And I think that... Like any realistic friendship, there were highs and lows and elements of each other that they liked and didn't like. And I think for Mm -hmm. Donna, it's really telling that she gravitated toward James after the fact. When James, which we'll get to in a moment here, was barely in the diary and he's just kind of a little anecdote of this nice, pure (laughs) thing that... Laura almost saw as like one of the last pure things she could get involved in. Yeah. The fact that Donna went for this naive, innocent, pure figure. We can argue about pure. We can argue about pure, (laughs) but pure in the eyes of Laura. And I think pure in the eyes of Donna. Yeah. I think that the parts of Laura that Donna liked went away as the diary progressed, which explains their friendship also deteriorating. (sighs) That purity thing just kind of bothers me. Just because this pure man is the same one who flipped out and freaked out and tossed things on the floor for the Palmer household <laughs> when he doesn't get his way. Yeah, well, well uh, hey. He's the pure a, child. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say a temper tantrum is a pure emotion. Sure. It is, I didn't get what I want. Wow. It's the pure, I need therapy, and hopefully we can find something well, better than Jacoby. we have Dr. Jacoby. No, we say. don't want right, Dr. Right. Jacoby. So, so back on Donna, from an early age, we get this sense that Laura can't even really share her basic sad thoughts with Donna Mm -hmm. because as Laura puts it, Donna doesn't realize that often the thoughts closest to my mind are the sad ones. Yeah. So even from a young age, like prior to age 12, Laura knew that she couldn't tell Donna all the sad things. This is even before the Bob elements. This is even before the really scary dreams. Yeah. She just couldn't trust Donna to get sadness. Yeah. It, I, I'm almost curious, and maybe there was something inside the text that I may have overlooked uh, mm. since the time we recorded this podcast, but I'm just wondering if this there might have been a fear with Laura almost wanting to not taint something that she may have found. I, I some, think there's an element implied of that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you can read a lot of the distancing that Laura has with Donna as a sense of preserving Donna. Mm-hmm. I think with a lot of Laura's actions, it's multiple multiple layers going mm-hmm. on. Some are healthy, some are unhealthy, some are quasi-healthy in the gray area. Mm-hmm. It's things that Laura's doing to protect herself and protect others, mm-hmm. whether right or wrong in its guidance. Yeah, um, yeah. Laura also doesn't want to tell Donna about the bad dreams. She's worried she won't understand. She claims at one point that Donna knows the most about her and sometimes is good understanding, but other times Donna just giggles. The giggling, I think, is interesting. That not only does Donna, not only does Donna not really understand, but there's this sense that Donna's response to not understanding is like an awkward giggle. She and, just doesn't really pick up on it yet. And as someone who's experienced anxiety in the past, where having someone make a reaction that I wasn't expecting, yeah, it can create more reservation for the character. And Mm -hmm. I imagine that that must've dissuaded her from opening up in general to expect something like a giggle or see that disconnect and not know where or who to connect with. 
Like, if, like, Donna reacted differently, maybe we might have had different experiences with Laura Palmer if she had someone to work those things out with. And a lot of these differences do stem from differences in how they handled their sexuality. Mm -hmm. So prior to puberty, they were very close friends, and it feels as though with the onset of puberty came the onset of Bob, the bad dreams, yeah. but also sexual awakening. And Donna by no means is necessarily quote unquote a prude. Mm -hmm. There is the sense in which Donna has an interest in boys, but it's a very different interest than Laura has. Mm -hmm. And so when Donna's thinking about boys, she wants to be treated like a princess. She wants to go drive in their cars, go on dates. And when she <laughs> does think about anything that involves sex, it's more of a peaceful, gentle, almost described like a soap opera, the way the diary describes it. Hey, if they check out Utana, which uh, would be premiering a few years later, hey, maybe they could have all of it. Princesses driving around, <laughs> sex. Right, right, right. Uh, referring to the anime we both enjoy. Very much Made so. videos on. If that interests you, like, if those are the only points I'm putting towards Utana, hey. <laughs> Revolutionary Girl Utana, especially the movie. The movie has a lot of cars. Uh. <laughs> Anyway, anyway, returning to this, returning to this, uh, Laura, when she's put in that position, is kind of an awkward spot because if Laura really says what she thinks about sex, yeah, it's gonna completely just like jarringly confuse Donna, yeah, and just possibly push Donna like leagues away. Mm -hmm. So instead, Laura has to lie and say like, "Oh yeah, I think the same things, Donna. It's okay." Oh. And there's moments where Laura even seems to be hoping against all doubt, especially when she's like 13 or 14, mm -hmm. hoping that Donna's going to say something that Laura has felt too. But Donna's so much, you can view it as behind in maturity. You can also view it as maybe Laura's accelerating in a different direction. But there's this sense that there's that disconnect between them where what Donna considers scandalous, Laura is considered normal five years ago. Yeah. Like, they're not even close in the same realm. You could say one's from Venus and one is from Earth. Absolutely. And I kind of speculate that although the book doesn't get into it as much as it maybe could have, um, I think Ronette almost filled that border a little bit. Yeah. Ronette became the female friend that Laura could divulge those fantasies to because Ronette was living in the same world. Mm -hmm. And that makes me wonder too, that if Donna had reciprocated, would Laura have pursued that physical connection with Donna the way she did Ronette? I think it's quite possible because Laura seems to treat physical intimacy as a form of coping mechanism for belonging in a way that isn't necessarily exclusive to a romantic relationship. I think that there's also a question on how much of a power dynamic it might be in which she feels that she has more control when she is yes. chasing these emotions as opposed towards, it seems that Donna gives off a more passive role. Again, yes. that princely figure, having something in which she is being treated. And Laura already has control over Donna without needing to do any of those sort of things. Exactly. There's a moment where they're trying their first cigarettes and Donna is really hesitant. And Laura writes in the diary that, you know, real friends, they don't pressure each other. But if she gives a certain <laughs> look, a certain way, she knows she can get Donna to do it. Yeah. And that's when she's like 13. Like Laura knows that she can get Donna on her side just with a little bit of a gesture, a little bit of the intonation of her voice. That's a lot of control for a 13 year old to have over their best friend. Yeah. And it seems that she gets her own personal, I would say almost high off of it at times. Mm -hmm. there, there's something about having control, especially with what she's had to face in the past with a lack of control right. that is, it's, is a drug on its own. Yeah. And I think it's interesting also the sort of 
back and forth in Laura's relationship with Donna, where sometimes Laura seems to treat Donna with a little bit of derision. There's that sense where it's like Donna doesn't get it. Donna's confused about it, almost judging Donna's lack of understanding. Mm -hmm. Other times, though, Laura seems to envy Donna's innocence. Mm -hmm. She, a lot of times when going through her periods of guilt, Laura will say that she needs to be good. Think no more bad thoughts. No more thinking about sex. And she mm. keeps wording it as be more like Donna. Mm -hmm. So in her mind, Donna's almost the good angel on her shoulder. Yes. And she thinks that if I could just be more like Donna, my life would be simple. My life would be happy. I wouldn't have all these secrets. Yes. If I could just be like Donna. But she can't be. No. And no more than Donna can be like Laura. And she worries that if Donna knew how black her insides were, that friendship would go away. Again, with that laugh, as well as appearing anxiety, I can't tell whether or not it would be, because obviously we didn't live through a reality like that. But it is definitely something very saddening for for something that could be very relatable for people. Where the Haywards don't do good with secrets in their family. Oh, boy. Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. Mm -hmm. We've seen how Donna reacted when facing a difficult reality mm -hmm. with Benjamin Horn possibly revealing that he is the father as mm -hmm. opposed towards Doc Hayward. And it seemed that this had driven Donna into a little bit of a frenzy saying, no, you're my daddy, you're my daddy to Doc Hayward. I'm wondering if, especially a younger Donna, if she may have tried to turtle up on a previous reality and not believe the activities Laura could have been compelled with. Yeah. I, I'm curious on how she would have reacted if, like, the nightmare right. scenario would be true. Well, the fact that when confronted with the situation, Donna's response is to, one, run away, and two, clutch Doc Hayward and say, you're my daddy. And it was very specific when I were doing our pot episode, that she used the word daddy. Yes. She used a very childlike way of wording that. Yes. That, yeah, I honestly do wonder if Laura had been around longer, if Laura would have lived longer and Donna would have learned more of those secrets. I honestly wonder if Laura wouldn't have, as you were kind of mentioning it, almost turtle inward, mm -hmm. right? That she would withdraw into herself and mm -hmm. go into that sort of almost Freudian stages of development, she would regress mm -hmm. into an earlier stage. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of elements of Donna that that feel repressed in a different way than they are for, like, Laura. Mm -hmm. Laura, you can argue after reading the diary, how much had she really known about Leland? Mm -hmm. How much had she suspected about Bob that mm -hmm. she pushed in the back of her subconscious? Yeah. There's an argument, because there's a moment where she realizes, and it makes you wonder how long had she kind of known but not let herself? Yeah. I think Donna, to some degree, has that repression too, but it has less tolerance. I think that Donna's repression will not let anything that violates her princess world almost. Yeah. And I think that that ends up hurting Donna in the long run because she's not able to face those things head on. I think she wasn't able to face her feelings on Laura's death head on either because she jumped right into James's arms right after. Mm -hmm. Just the way she jumped into her daddy's arms right after she encountered that problem. Oh, boy. Again, Freud. <laughs> oh, again, Freud. <laughs> she's into the strong arms of the daddy figure. Yep. Oh, man, I didn't expect to do so much psychoanalysis this early. <laughs> um Sort of a microcosm of their whole relationship is the Josh and Tim situation, which we had first heard in the TV show from Donna's conversation with Harold, 
Yeah. She had shared to Harold the story, which now that I'm thinking about it, Harold probably knew the story already from the diary. Yeah. So when he was listening to Donna's version, it wasn't new to him. It may not be new to him, but it's still a perspective. It could be validation on where with the truth fully was. Sure. I mean, that's what kind of like Harold is looking for, these true stories, mm-hmm. these um, overall experiences fully of life. And knowing that there's a bit more to conclude that and make it true. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can see where he kind of may romanticize that encounter. And I think that both Donna and Laura romanticize it in slightly different ways. Yeah. Laura's account is much more specific. And because it's from Laura's perspective, she, to use kind of an analogy here, she was closer to the edge of the waters than Donna was. Yes. In the sense that Laura was engaging in activity that'd be much more risque and scandalous than what Donna was. Now, the whole situation itself is deeply alarming and uh, problematic. Yeah. um, Especially for the gentleman involved doing what I would consider very, very bad thing by doing this. Yes. But, but the parts that Donna emphasizes and the parts that Donna is willing to engage in compared to Laura's Mm -hmm. and also comparing what this situation represented to them, Mm -hmm. there are some differences that are worth note. In Laura's version, we find out how this all started, that... Laura basically convinced Donna, as Laura was always the one that seemed to be in charge. Yeah. Laura convinced Donna to meet a couple of boys at the bookhouse. Now, mind you, this was also on a day that uh, their parents were away so yes. that they could get more away with it at a party of Benjamin Horns. Yes. So, and yeah, no, they decided that they were going to go off there. And I believe that um, Donna did even go into, they were wearing uh, certain outfits. Yes. To here. By the way, we find out what the bookhouse is. Yay! Yeah. Uh, finally some context. Finally some context. If true, uh, the bookhouse, believe it or not, is a coffee house. Yeah. Yeah. Which again, in a series so obsessed with coffee, it must not be that good of coffee. <laughs> like compared to the double R, it's not that good of coffee. Hey, uh, apparently there are some places to get really good cups of coffee that we can go deeper into as we talk more about Welcome to Twin Peaks. But hey, that's in the fun future. In this reality, it might be subpar coffee. It might be coffee on the side. This might be a bed and breakfast because there's literally a bed there that Truman stays in. <laughs> I do think it's really funny to think that the Bookhouse Boys don't even like the Bookhouse Boy coffee. Yeah. Like that they would go to the double R for their coffee, even though they literally are the Bookhouse Boys. <laughs> it's closer. Uh, I, I imagine that I imagine the Bookhouse is in the middle of the woods, just from the, how the lighting is. I do think it's interesting how much the diary de-glamorizes the Bookhouse Boys, and this yeah. is something I want to talk a little bit about. Uh, she describes the place as smelling like cigarettes, aftershave, coffee. This is sort of, it's a man cave, right? That's what this place is. Uh-huh. And it's interesting then to think that the Bookhouse Boys, as we understand them, it's a bunch of high school football stars who unofficially do their Batmaning, protecting the town from the vague idea of darkness in the woods. Gen- and yet, to Laura Palmer, who's experiencing more darkness than possibly anyone in Twin Peaks... She just goes there to hook up with guys. I mean, it also... It, doesn't, it isn't very helpful. Like, the Bookhouse Boys are not helping Laura Palmer. No, uh, at least this generation of Bookhouse Boys. I don't know right. on how Truman It just and feels Hawk, like, a ge- like a gentleman's club almost. They just, like, hang out with each other and do guy stuff. Which, apparently, it, women are allowed. Like, it's okay if, like, women do come to the Bookhouse. She does make note onto that. Yeah, but they're not Bookhouse Boys. <laughs> they're not inclusive like that. It doesn't feel like they really do much for how much the talk is from Truman that they're supposed to be doing this sort of protecting. Mm-hmm. I know they're a bunch of high school buddies. That's all they are. I, I'm pretending just... they could do more. <laughs> Maybe that's where Truman sort of stands. Like they're the true bookhouse boys and they've got to somewhat guide these other people, which by the way, bad selection for the Canadian bookhouse boys who are stopping <laughs> by. We, we meet these two men named Josh and Tim 
Also, we find out that Jake is some guy who runs the place. Okay. And there's this picture of a man on a wall that Laura is, like, drawn to. <laughs> I'm just going to imagine that Jake, uh, since we didn't get a name for that one man who ended up getting knocked out at the bookhouse trying to watch over mm-hmm. t- Truman. I'll just imagine that's Jake. I like to imagine it's Young Toad. Just Young Toad? It's Thaddeus himself. Thaddeus Jake Toad. So many initials in there. He, <laughs> he has 100 names, I swear. Laura describes Josh and Tim as men in their 20s quote-unquote, nice guys. Laura said she felt safe with them, but not excited. That is the realm that these two occupied her. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. They gave Laura and Donna marijuana, and it was their first time smoking it. Yep. There's a moment where Laura reflects in the diary that she doesn't think that they would have had sex with them even if they'd asked. She detected that they were almost afraid to go that far. Yeah. So Laura speculates that even if she and Donna had initiated, the men would not have gone that far. Uh-huh. However... They are willing to go far farther than they should. Yeah. And yeah. this whole situation, it, I think it's interesting that Donna even romanticizes it, even with Donna's quote-unquote purity in mind. Yeah, even when she's talking about it with Harold, it still is in that fairy tale sense of and even like in how like, soft everything was. Even in like late 80s, early 90s, this still would be eyebrow-raising that you don't let your like like 15, 14, 13 even, your old daughter's in the situation. This is very much, uh, in our modern day context, an FBI open up situation. Yeah, and and deservedly so, because Josh and Tim, these random Canadian guys, just show up and thank God nothing worse happened. Yeah. But yeah. even what did happen, again, there's concerns. Absolutely. And from Laura's perspective, though, this is like a good memory to Laura. Mm-hmm. This is pretty much like no negatives. Laura writes about enjoying the feeling that these men in their 20s needed her. Mm -hmm. This sort of empowerment angle that she felt. Mm -hmm. She describes everything as feeling like a dream, like a form of bliss, to the point where she didn't even care if she ever saw Donna again, if she ever saw her mom again or Maddie. Everything in the night was just great. Mm -hmm. The only exception, of course, is that when she thinks of it later, she purposefully makes it nastier. Yeah. She thinks about it later and kind of thinks, well, what if it had gone farther? What if it had gone this way? So she purposefully changes the memory in her mind to distort it, to make it more than what it was for her. Mm -hmm. And notably on that night, again, Donna did not go as far as Laura did. Yes. And toward the end of that exchange, there was a period where Laura and Donna uh, embraced in a hug. And Laura thinks of this as being one of the most pure, and that was her wording, purest joys of that night. Yes. That in a night where there was drugs and sexual activity with the men, mm-hmm. one of her highlights was still the hug with Donna, mm-hmm. um, which I think is interesting to note. And there was a period shortly after that where Laura and Donna weren't speaking, and Laura felt like she had gone too far. She was being judged. Mm-hmm. And then later patched it up with Donna, and things returned to a relative sense of normal. Mm-hmm. But I don't really know if Laura ever got closure on that period where Donna never talked to her. It just feels like it kind of, they fell out for a little bit and then they started talking again. And that can happen. I think it really does chip away at the statue that was their relationship, if anything. And that is... The forbidden fruit. Oh, no. If you will. No. I I did dare... There is, like, a lot of problems with their relationship and makes me quite sad. Yeah. Hey, thankfully, we have a relationship that has no problems at all. Enter Mike the Snake Nelson. (laughs) What? I'm I'm sorry. I'm being sarcastic, being sarcastic. Thank you. Thank you. I was about to walk away from the mic. Oh, bah. That works two ways. Uh, Oh, no. no. (laughs) This is what you do to me. There's a point later on where Donna pulls Laura into her room, and she tells Laura that she and Mike are going to go all the way on Thursday. And again, Laura has to pretend that that's a big deal. 
When at this point, Laura's had like a whole list of men that she's encountered with and women. Yep. So this is nothing to Laura. Nope. And Laura, all she really has to note about it is she thought that Mike seemed like a jerk. She uses a stronger word than jerk. Mm -hmm. But she's like, whatever, I'm not sleeping with the guy. <laughs> so she even has a sort of blase, like whatever attitude toward it. Like Dawn is entering a relationship with one of the clearest jerks in the school. Mm -hmm. And Laura's just like, eh, whatever. At least it's not me doing this. Yeah. Says a yeah. lot where Laura and Donna's friendship has gone, that there's that little, there's no protectiveness anymore. No, it is, I guess that she's kind of like existing in Donna's life more than she is engaging in it. I do think it's interesting to wonder what Donna saw in Mike, because by the time the show begins, he's stereotypical controlling boyfriend. I think that there were definitely moments like how he was with Nadine. Mm -hmm. uh, where there is still uh, an aspect of love, there was just some toxicity that was also in the background. There's almost a maturity angle. She wants to be with a guy who's like slightly older, can drive these fancy cars. Yeah. He's a football guy. Like, I think there's this sense of it fits the mold of someone Donna would be interested in enough. Yeah. And she probably thinks, like Nadine, that his buns are cute. But as far as personalities meshing, I don't know how much connection there was or how much Donna even really thought about the personality element. I mean, in Mike being in good standing with probably the rest of the school, he may have just been a knight in shining armor for a bit. Well, and also thinking that Laura's with Bobby, Bobby's friends with Mike, I think there might have been that element too. Yeah. That Donna has a little bit of that competitiveness with Laura that she kind of wants to keep up a little bit. With I mean, we Laura. see it inside the series yeah. where like she tries to emulate some of Laura's habits and how Laura was. So you can date a football star, I can date a football star. They're both like even together. Like, how could their personalities not be more similar? And that's the thing is you realize how naive Donna was to even if that if that's what she thought yeah that she thought that would make her similar to laura she has no clue what laura's doing nope that that's the thing she gravitated toward she's a diet laura yeah which it makes me sympathize with donna and i hate to even say that because i can't stand her <laughs> character but i i think there's an element of yeah tragedy in light of the diary mm -hmm. and we do get the falling out of the friendship described in the, in the diary to the extent that by the time you know laura's 16 they really weren't friends mm -hmm. to Laura's side. We don't really know how Donna felt, mm -hmm. but Laura's at that point where she says, quote, we're like everybody else. We say something is forever when really it only lasts until we're tired of it. <sighs> and Laura, by this point, was tired of it. Mm -hmm. She realizes also at that older age that she was wrong to think of Donna like a fool just because they'd grown apart. And she also realized that she was thinking of Donna as less than just because Donna had not been made bitter by anyone. Mm -hmm. Laura kind of recognizes in a moment of maturity, I would say, and self-reflection, mm -hmm. that a lot of her disdain for Laura, a lot of her disdain for Donna was this feeling inside of her that she rejected how much Donna wasn't bitter, how much Donna hadn't been scarred mentally yet. That there's this sort of sense of Laura hating someone who's managed to eke out a better life. Yeah, uh, genuinely, I don't think that Laura and Donna were good for each other in that respect, especially mm -hmm. with how things came to a crashing halt. And James is that little shining light within the darkness. No, James, no, he is just not. James for never. So we get a startlingly little bit of information on James. I would say. Maybe startling, but I think it's like, ooh, th th this is actually pretty good. It's revealing how little James mattered here. Yep. Because by the end of the diary, okay, so some pages are torn out. You can believe that James was in there maybe. But 
by the time that Laura's wrapping up the journal and she's close to the end, right? Yeah. She hasn't really brought up James much at all. She didn't talk about like being into him. She's kind of like, oh yeah, we're dating. And she also never really gushed about their relationship. Like as someone who, you know, if you just watch the show, you oftentimes don't really realize how big of a gap there was. Cause I don't think at the time of the show, there was it explained how much Bobby's relationship with Laura was so much more important to Laura mm-hmm. than her relationship with James. Absolutely. James is a little tiny, like hello kitty bandaid that she put over all of her wounds. <laughs> and it's like, at the end of the day, the hello kitty bandaid wasn't stopping the gangrene. Oh, Oh, it's just kind of a little cute bandaid on top of it. And that's all James really was. So when you realize that that's all there is in the diary, if we take this to be meaning anything, it would mean that he's a footnote. Mm -hmm. He's a little anecdote. He's a little trivia piece. Like, by the way, there's this guy named James. He's okay. Yeah, he is. He is something of an entity. I suppose if anything, he was just maybe a, an excuse if anything else. Because she describes him as being a friend of hers and Donna's prior to the relationship, but yeah. she never wrote about him for all those years. Like, oh. how little she must have he must have mattered. Which, I mean, does give credence to the idea that James and Donna make more sense for each other because clearly Donna did think about James. Yeah, and with this sort of situation, like, we see, like, a little flashback in the series on something that I really didn't feel the romance on. And hey, it, this kind of, like, justifies that yeah. for me. Where she's just like, here, have this. After he's like, oh, you're... Oh, your hair is so soft. <laughs> Which, now that and... you know what Laura writes like in her diary, how banal, how just <laughs> nonsense it is for this dude to be like, your hair smells pretty and you smile nice. She's like, thanks. <laughs> thanks, yeah. Uh-huh. Good job, buddy. Here's a gold star. I mean, gold heart. The little bit we get of James is just, yeah, she's attracted to his purity. As she, again, that's the word she uses. I'm just quoting the lady. And it's a secret relationship only because she wanted it to be secret. Yeah. She's still kind of with Bobby, but at this point, it's clearly just for the drugs. She's acknowledged that she's not really in love with Bobby anymore. And she mm-hmm. sees, honestly, she thinks at this point, Bobby should go with Shelly. So it's just kind of a vestigial relationship for the sake of cocaine. So James is like her last chance. She views James as like a little bit of hope she's allowing herself. How sad. James? Like truly, actually sad if James is that little little bit of sweetness, a little bit of hope in her life. Um, I, I'm critical on James a lot. Yeah. And I still am. Yes. And I will continue to be likely. Yeah. Um. Yeah, no, that, ugh. not to mention, it still is kind of, I would say even leading on James. So there is some pity I do give to James as well. Mm-hmm. It's just not a good situation. He had no idea what he was doing. No, there's like no communication, no consent to what the heck is happening. Right. So we talked about how James and Donna didn't seem to really get Laura Palmer. Yeah. But do you know, strangely enough, who got Laura Palmer or rather what got Laura Palmer? Um, Animals. Oh, that could still be who. It could be a who, depending on how you view things. I view animals as beautiful. Animals are not people. <gasps> I know. If I'm the vegetarian. Send, if you want to send your complaints to Khalil for not recognizing your animals as people, please email us at snakeeyedreams at gmail.com or yell at him through our Twitter feed at <laughs> snakeeyedreams1, the numeral one. Hey, I'm, I'm a vegetarian. Animals aren't people. You eat meat. You eat people. <laughs> I do eat people. Your logic is that animals are people. I consume human flesh. Did I ever say that I was a good person? I don't think I ever claimed that in the I'm podcast or anything like that. perfect person. Yep. You know that song by like Hoobastank? That is exactly the tone I, I imagined it. I think it's Hoobastank. 
It's a song. Anyway, Jupiter was uh, Laura's cat. <laughs> it's like I just dropped like a 10-ton weight of sadness by mentioning this. Uh, yep. So Jupiter is a cat that Laura had for years. I don't think we get an exact age was of how long. Was a cat. Yep. I don't think we get a sense of how long she had her, but it was she's had her for years prior to being age 12. And described Jupiter as being very important to her. I would argue probably one of Laura's best friends by the way it's described. We know that she wasn't super, super close with her mother and father consistently. They had some things in common, but I feel like that cat was probably more important to her in some regards as a confidant than her father and mother were. And since she didn't have the diary, I almost wonder if Jupiter heard more of her secrets than anyone else until that diary happened. Mm Mm-hmm. Likely, and it's unfortunate that we don't really get that far uh, yeah. with Jupiter. In fact, there even is just a small little moment where she has a nice little dream, and then later on we get uh, the fun little story told, which we might be able to imply someone in the situation yeah. where Jupiter had unfortunately been ran over. Yeah, so Jupiter was hit by a car on the road, and we get no real clarity on who did it. No, uh, I have money on someone, though. Who? Uh, the person who's really bad at driving when we see him drive. Bobby? Leland Palmer, or the Leland Bob. Leland Palmer. Yeah, no, where his, oh. like, the father may have, because, like, that would be that would close to the home and everything. And there could be enough scrutiny either, A, the father saying that this is sad and it's so sad that this had happened while not wanting to hurt her daughter, or B, it may have been the Bob part that came through. I think it's a good headcanon because it does imply the idea that Bob would see what happens to Laura if I remove this thing of goodness in her life? Not, it feels up Bob's alley. Not to mention, it would be an excellent way to mirror the sins of the father with the sins of the daughter, yeah. where she did later on do that herself. And if it wasn't be, a dream. If it wasn't... Was the dream with the little girl? That's what we're going to talk about. Yeah. So the, the thing you're talking about, right? Later on in the story, Laura has this moment where she's driving distracted because she's reading Flesh World while driving. Yeah. Which I would say don't read Flesh World while driving. Don't read while driving. But as she's reading, she ends up running over a cat and Laura notices the girl who owned the cat. Mm -hmm. And this girl's name is Danielle. And Laura, rather than driving off, she stops and consoles the girl. And Mm -hmm. by consoles the girl, I mean Laura's a sopping mess and Danielle consoles her. Yeah. Because Laura feels this astounding guilt because she knows what it's like to be the little girl who lost her cat. And Danielle is just like, no, why are you crying? What's wrong? And like sympathizing with Laura. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason I bring up if it's a dream is because I'm not sure this actually happened. There's no one else other than Laura and Danielle that were around for this event. Uh And by this point, Laura had already talked about in her diary that she's starting not to know what's real and what's not real anymore. Danielle feels like a lodge spirit. Now, that might be a case. That might just be real enough with her. Like, we've seen the Tremon boy. Mm -hmm. Like, maybe this is a form. Maybe this is sort of like a black lodging situation where something is being sorted out with some baggage inside of her. And there's some reflection that she must face. And it's not something Laura ever specifically says is a dream, but I think if anything in this diary was a dream, this is one of the most suspicious events because no one else is around to corroborate it, and we never hear or see anything about it ever again. And the fact that it mirrors Laura's trauma so well, yeah, it feels like if it is a real thing, wow, what a crazy coincidence. Hey, books are filled with crazy coincidences. It's it could all be. part of the fiction. It could be. But it also would be that if this is some sort of weird karma, spiritual dream thing, yeah, there's something to that. Mm-hmm. And the fact that Danielle is so overabundantly kind to her. 
you could say that the pureness and the innocence of a child yeah. is a little bit important in that context. And, yeah. and I really don't know what to say about this as well, but it is worth noting that the cat is named Jupiter. And we do have references to planets throughout Twin Peaks. What? But that's the thing is like Saturn and the importance of the Saturn lamp in the red room and the planets aligning for the half a year period where the lodge opens up. When Jupiter and Saturn. Yeah. uh, Yeah. So that's the thing is how important is that when this book was released in between seasons one and two? Eh. You can make of it something with it. It's it's still a little bit suspect that the cat is named Jupiter. I think that it's important enough for where Jupiter sort of walks or the way that Jupiter is introduced at the beginning of the yeah. book, but not much has gone through. Let's just say maybe Jupiter is starting to get in line, uh, at least for Laura Palmer, where right. more of the Bob things are unlocked for her. Well, and there's also the interesting element that if we're going to go with animals that Laura was impacted by, we get much more of Troy. The Troy horse. is such a weird name for a horse. Well, and this I'm is okay where, if you want to really read into names, yeah, the only thing I can think of is that Troy reminds me of like the Greek legend, the Troy, the Trojan yeah. War. And what I think about that is that in the myths, the war, the Trojan War, was fought over one beautiful woman and kind of the fate of that woman. Yeah. I'm just saying that the diary is about the fate of one woman or a girl in this case, wavering in between as people are trying to possess her. I think that the and horse a, being a gift is important yeah. because the old tale with the Trojan horse being yes. a gift and being sent in with ulterior motives. Eh? So the idea of a gift horse, don't look it in the mouth. And also the idea of the Trojan war, you can try to articulate something. I'm inclined not to read into it that way. Yeah. I'm inclined to believe it's just a horse named Troy. Uh, that That's fine. That's fine. I just uh, think if you're going to read into it, that's where I would go. I'll read into it. I'm in my conspiracy corner. <laughs> uh, I enjoy me with my Saturn lamp over here. So Troy originally was supposedly from Leland. Uh, Laura received it as a gift from her dad. She later finds out it was actually Benjamin Horn who gave the horse. Which I wonder what the conversation was. It's just yeah. more so Ben just saying, hey, you know what? Your daughter, she deserves a pony. Maybe there was a deal at the pony shop where if you buy so many ponies, you get an extra pony free. How many ponies do you think Audrey has? Zero. We got that. We actually do get that established pretty much. Oh no! Because he never bought a pony for Audrey, as far as we can tell. That's sad. Maybe it's it's a business deal. He just got a pony from his operations somewhere, and he's like, I don't know what to do with this pony. Give it to your daughter. Which, by the way, if it's sort of that situation where, yeah, he's giving gifts to Laura Palmer, though it's not really like noted immediately that it was from Benjamin Mm -hmm. Horn. Uh, it it's definitely puts a context in their relationship yeah. early on. I honestly do wonder, because there's two possibilities that are floating in my mind. One is that he bought the pony specifically for Laura because it was Laura's birthday coming up. Yeah. The other possibility I'm more inclined to believe is he got the pony somewhere else and thought of giving it to Laura before giving it to Audrey. And knowing that Ben is involved in all these uh, questionable legal deals, yeah. I honestly feel like he's like, uh, Leland... I got this horse. Can't really say where for legal purposes. Um, <laughs> I need this to go someplace. Hey, Laura's birthday's coming up, right? I almost feel it makes more sense in my brain that Ben got a horse through some other random means. It wouldn't be the weirdest thing. He's probably got out of a business deal before. Yeah. And he gave it to Leland as a quick way to get rid of this horse. God damn it. Jerry, you cannot trade our businesses for horses. <laughs> horses aren't a valid currency. Um, Cheese pigs, however, are a valid currency. <laughs> Jokes aside, I'm more inclined with the former than the latter myself, mainly because of how romantic he does reflect on Laura Palmer. I imagine that may have happened later on. Not to mention the way that he sort of deals with the loss of her horse later on. Yeah. There's this point where that 
Laura does let Troy go because that is the romantic thought. That is the thought that you're no longer caged up by me. You're free to do as you need. Yeah. But that did something horrible where the horse went off and starved to death and could not cope with the wild. See, in my head canon, I like the extra layer that Ben got it through a shady dealing because then you have a horse that originally was acquired through some sort of criminal underbelly means that was then masked as a gift from a parent on her birthday, but then <laughs> actually was sort of this underhand, like you said, a Trojan horse situation. I like the layering of where this horse came from and what its purpose was in the narrative. <laughs> well, regardless, he puts at least Laura's emotions at the forefront enough because he says that he will find whoever yes. did this to that horse yeah, because Laura that matters enough to him. So well, however he handled yes. it, he still thinks it's important for him to do this for Laura. He still thought of giving it the horse to Laura before Audrey. Mm -hmm. And so Laura, when writing about Troy, is just amazed by how much this horse seems to understand her feelings. In particular, Laura seems to have a propensity to understand and communicate with animals. Like, uh -huh. not like Aquaman telepathy, but the sense of she really feels like these animals get her and can feel her emotions in a way that a lot of people can't. The closest person I would say to this is probably Johnny, who, you know, not to take this too far into a stretch, but I think the sense of Johnny's mentality being more like a child, one could say, uh -huh. there's that sort of simple-mindedness that he has. It's not a negative, but it's just a part of his personality. Okay. I think it's something that she can connect with similarly that she can with an animal. It's something in which she does delve into more of her impulses and demands that might be considered more simple, more pure. Yeah, a horse isn't going to judge you. If you say something and a horse looks at you like... <sighs> It really? means I want apples. It means I want apples. Give me some sugar cubes. Yes. Uh, Wait, which one is it? Apples or sugar cubes? And there, there's a... <laughs> moving forwards. There's a great tragedy, of course, in the fact that the reason why Troy ends up having to get put down and shot down by the officers is that Laura let him out. Mm -hmm. That Laura let Troy out in this attempt to free Troy that ultimately got the horse malnourished in terrible condition and mm -hmm. then executed. Mm -hmm. And Laura is just, again, racked with guilt. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, and she feels like she's cursed to only hurt people at that point. Yeah, it definitely does put a damper on just her trying to, again, have that control, uh, wanting to give that sense of freedom to other creatures because mm -hmm. that's what's important to her in the moment without sort of fully thinking through the situations yeah. or um, being more into the romantic when realistically it's just not as good. It's just not good for the horse. Yeah. And who knows what that might even reflect onto Laura herself. Maybe that also makes her sort of wheel back on maybe she's questioning how she's dealing with her own actions for herself if she couldn't even take care of this horse and let it to its demise. Let him to his demise, rather. And weirdly enough, you know, my first instinct was to think, well, Troy, horse, could it be a white horse? Like we saw Sarah Palmer see in the episode where Maddie's killed. Okay. And no, Troy is described as a cinnamon red and deep brown horse. Yeah, uh, that sort of coloration, yeah. Well, to be fair, that sort of dark brown and white is the pattern of the chevron floor as well. <laughs> well, let's just also consider the fact that not only, A, can we think about the more uh, pure white horse. It could be like the sense of death as the common, how the horse usually looks. But we could also think like the most common way to show a ghostly entity is to have it in sort of that white form. Like right. you will see a white powdered form of the ghost of Christmas past, present, I'm, and future. I'm still and sympathetic to believe that is the pale horse of death, right? Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm inclined to believe that that is looking at the apocalyptic reading. Maybe it's a little column A, column B, hey. We can, a we can horse have, of many names. A horse of many names uh, is just as coming, sweet. Coming to a Hallmark station near you. I oh. don't know how many Hallmark stations you have near you, but it's coming to one of them. Oh, no. 
Well, in truth, whenever we have to consider whether or not this white horse is one thing or another, uh, maybe we should put on our white gloves and tell whether or not this man is one thing or another as we look into Leland Palmer. Here's the dotes and nosy dotes and the lives at Ivy. Oh. So, which by the way, yes. one thing I would like to note, yes. uh, Leland Palmer does have a pop figure. And, Beautiful. Oh, he has, I've seen it. Yeah, I know. Yep. Why? He's got very distinct eyes, and he's got very distinct. <laughs> this white is gloves. why we don't let you see merchandise until you finish the show. Yeah, I don't look at the hands too closely, but post this, yeah, yeah ooh. it is kind of morbid for a pop figure too. Uh, like I know pop figures will exist for like Game of Thrones and like M-rated things. Yeah, but there's something especially morbid about the man who kills his daughter, and among other things, uh-huh. wearing the white gloves, and it looks especially concerning. No, they do that for multiple pop figures there's oh. laura palmer wrapped in plastic as one of the pop that's figures true. that's true so no they've put the most noble moments which in twin peaks happens to be the darkest there should be a jacoby one <laughs> jacoby no i mean like imagine how cool that would look at the red and blue glasses i don't and his, like, want outfit. a tiny hula skirt tie oh, but imagine if it's like you can move it too so it's got like the little <laughs> skirt part anyway um i'd be cool if you were to give me a, if you were to have a jacoby let's Let's break the tension of this Leland. We don't want to get into Leland right now, right? Yeah. Um, what would be your ideal Twin Peaks pop Funko figure if you were to have one, not sponsored? For me, it's Oof. Jacoby. He'd be the coolest design. I want to selfishly say something like Rosenfeld for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, but by the gods, are there just so many shots of Wyndham Earl that I think would just be magical for a pop figure? Are you thinking of the one with the black teeth? That's one of the potential ones, like how the horse. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you could have a whole lineup of Funko Pop for uh, Wyndham Earl. Yep, just the Wyndham Earl line. 